I'm Sarah Lovestyle, and this is Influence to Equity. I will be joined by guests from a wide range of industries who all have the commonality that there's no perfect linear line to success or life. Together, we're gonna figure out what works for you, for what defines success along your journey. From making newspapers in his childhood home to becoming the general manager of Uninterrupted, the go-to source for athlete-driven entertainment journalism, Jimmy Spencer has learned a thing or two along the way. The former sports writer turned media maven is here with us. I'm ex so excited to welcome Jimmy Spencer. Jimmy? Thank you. Media maven from media making maven. newspapers in my upstairs attic, by the way, is where it all happened. Now we need the tea. <laughs> I, I need to know, take us all the way back. How did you get started? Where did you even get the idea? Because that's pretty bold for a kid. When I was a kid, I lived in the Bay Area and we had, and the Bay Area right now has a lot of stars, athletes. Back then we had Ricky Henderson, Mark McGuire, Jose Canseco, Barry Bonds, Will Clark. We had, and Joe Montana, I mean, you, you name it. So this is during the steroids era. <laughs> Can we talk about that? <laughs> First off. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Yeah, I'll take yeah. it back. <laughs> no, I think that the uh, as a kid, by the way, I think I was the last defender of all Bay Area athletes when mm. it came to steroid accusations. Okay. I, I did my research on the ESPN message boards. I had a, I don't even know what the computer was back then. It was, um, you know, it definitely wasn't a laptop. And there was a program there where I could make newspapers. It's funny because I was never academically gifted. <laughs> That's for sure. So through school, I was always a C student, B student, et cetera, but I had a love for sports and I was always thinking maybe one day I could be a sports writer. You know, I could be uh, someone who's on TV talking sports, whatever that could look like. Um, but then I failed English in high school <laughs> when I was a sophomore and, you know, I go through my story and my story is more, I mean, now I, I look back and I had terrible anxiety as yeah. a kid. I would get anxiety and by the way, I still deal with this a lot, but I would get anxiety if I felt like I was trapped in like a space yes. and in a classroom and I couldn't get up, I couldn't get out. And so I failed English, had to go to summer school. I remember ditching summer school, getting caught, which was mom was not happy. Long story short, I didn't think I could be a sports writer. Really? So I just turned that off and I didn't even think I was going to go to college. I didn't think... I didn't know what I was going to do. I mean, maybe that's true of a lot of 17-year-olds. I have to think back to that frame of mind where I didn't necessarily care about anything. Mm -hmm. Like, it's kind of a sad thing to think about, except, boy, did I love the San Francisco 49ers and the San Francisco Giants yeah. and the Golden State Warriors, even though at that time they were terrible. I went off thinking I wasn't going to do anything, and I fell into journalism by the time I was in college, which the way I got into college, by the way, is like, no one should have let me into a college. <laughs> but there's a lovely school up in Sacramento called Sacramento State. God bless you. <laughs> thankfully, at that time, was letting a young Jimmy Spencer into school. And so I, I snuck in like the right SAT score to GPA thing. I was at a party. I was like a sophomore in college. And the sports editor for the campus paper was there. And we were talking about why sex state sports were terrible. And he's like, oh, if you think you know, blah, 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 write a column. And maybe like like anyone in media, I got a taste of that, and I loved it. It's I addictive. loved the reaction. And I found out that I don't need to write like a five-page essay on Hamlet in order to write a sports column yes. and be entertaining. Yes. So I fell in love with that, and that was like the start of being published. I ended up being the editor-in-chief of my campus newspaper, worked at the Sacramento Bee newspaper, a lot of newspapers. I find your story fascinating because I don't think most people know about this. When I was 
13, 14 years old. I am in seventh grade. I knew then that I wanted to be a journalist and I wanted to be a sports mm. journalist. Yeah. I knew then what I wanted to do with my life. And I knew that I wanted to have a show and I wanted to be on TV talking about sports because I was just so passionate about it. But that's not those aren't the hands that life dealt me. Mm -hmm. And it's, so it's, it's interesting that something that would be considered a fail at the time ends up coming back to you as an adult or, you know, or as you're in college and, and evolving into the person you were supposed to be to begin with. Yeah. For me, that journey came 20 years later. When you're talking about anxiety, which I have, you say that you felt inadequate uh, as a writer mm -hmm. um, at one point, and, mm -hmm. but you still managed to find your voice how? I think that one, there was a lot of cool stuff happening around that time with media. You know, traditionally media had been reserved for a handful of columnists, writers, beat reporters, et cetera, in the sports world that would live at newspapers and local television. And that was really the market. Right. And ESPN was, you know, the end-all, be-all, but for the select few. Right. And so for me at the time, digital media was coming about. You know, I came, when I was going to college, it was 2001, 2005, that era. Mm -hmm. I mean, honestly, it sounds funny now, but like the internet was really coming to be what it is. It and was. so there was a lot of writers who were finding their voice through blogs, et cetera. I think that I found my voice, honestly, through my love for people. And I always felt like I, though I am passionate about sports, I'm not passionate about X's and O's of sports, but I am fascinated in people and almost like a sociologist living in a sports world, trying to figure out what makes people go. And, and so my voice really became other people's voices mm. and figuring out how to tell their story and paint the picture of who they are. I'm not a great writer when it comes to describing a scene, right? Like if you're in the media and you're great, I think some of the best storytellers are those who can really describe a scene. I can describe emotion though. And I can mm -hmm. describe what it feels like even more so from a personal standpoint, you know, like I think the best writing that I could do now would be personal writing. But as a sports writer, where I really found my voice again was just going in and, and learning who somebody was and trying to project what I saw in that person outwardly. And that kind of became my voice when I was in that space, which now feels like a totally different chapter of my career. I think one of the things that you said that I love about you and the work that you do, especially at Uninterrupted, is there is a humanization of the athlete. There is a storytelling element of who they are off the court. Could you have imagined at the time, though, that you would be before Uninterrupted and going from Bleacher Report mm -hmm to getting a phone call from Mav Carter and LeBron, what did that scenario look like? And is that something that you aspired to be or, or would have thought that that was a possibility? No, you know, it's funny. I I had recently been fired by Bleacher Report oh. as, a, <laughs> as a, and there's not like a really great fun story there. It was one of those things where, you know, when you sign a contract, you have to realize that sometimes those contracts can last a short amount of time. Sure. And, Everyone always says the media is tough or the media world and, and the sports world is tough. I got that taste. Like I had that experience. Um, and the reason, you know, all things as it came back was the time I was very worried. I was like, man, I suck as a writer. Like mm. I just got fired. Like let go out of nowhere. You know, I don't really know why. What happened? It ended up being the best thing that ha ever happened to me. Not because... I think poorly of Bleacher. I think they're great. And I think the people there are great. And and the founders and the, the group that was there when I was there was great too. But at the time, you know, it was a business decision based on someone else they were bringing in who was also very great, who I respect. But what it did was it made me a free agent at the perfect time. Yes. And you think about like speaking of sports, like how many times have we seen that 
in the world of sports where an athlete, something's not working out with the team, they get let go or they get traded or whatever. And then suddenly this great thing happens for them, right? Or they get put in the right place in the right position. And so for me, I was at the time I was trying to do what everyone in San Francisco is doing, which is like tech startup equity in a company. I'm going to be the next billionaire and I can afford a house in Marin, you know, (laughs) one of those, one of those scenarios. And I do remember getting a call from a friend of mine saying that LeBron and Maverick were going to start a media company and they needed someone to run content. And there was really no details. And so I flew down and met with Maverick Carter, um, back in 2015. And he had a vision for what he wanted to do. And he wanted to tell athlete stories. LeBron wanted to tell athlete stories uninterrupted. Uh, I never would have thought that it would turn into what it's become, you know, or that I would even get the job. Like I interviewed like a random Joe, you know, I showed up and it was at all places, you know, it was at um, Jimmy Iovine's house in his backyard. And I remember, yeah, and I was thinking like, I'm just this like, Sac State kid <laughs> with Maverick, I think one of the things that he did is he just encouraged me. You know, I didn't have, think about that. I'd just been fired from a company. When I came to the situation, it could not have worked out better from just a career trajectory, but more so from, I just feel like I found what I'm good at. Yeah. And what, I, what I'm good at didn't exist 10 years ago when I wanted to get into media. And it was originally athlete relations was really where I, you know, made my mark and was able to develop really great relationships with athletes across the board. And again, I just felt that encouragement. I find it interesting that you said um, you weren't sure you were going to get the job. And then you also said, you talked about your emotions and maybe that sucking at at writing Yeah, yeah. and also sneaking into college. Did you have, and how have you dealt with imposter syndrome? Yeah. I, it's funny because I think I just now am getting out of imposter syndrome. Really? And the only reason is, is not because I think highly of myself, and maybe it's coming across, by the way, that I don't think very highly of myself that's not, and maybe I'm being too self-deprecating, you know, I feel confident in my strengths and where I what I do now. But honestly, and this is going to sound maybe like I'm throwing shade at the world, but there's not a lot of talented people out there. Mm. And and I mean that, it sounds so disrespectful to say that. No, not at all. But I think that we cap out. I don't think anyone's that... 100 on Madden rating. You know, I think that like <laughs> most people have shortfalls. And so as going through that, I started to realize what I was pining for or what I thought I needed to level up to be is a facade. Mm-hmm. It doesn't actually exist. And the imposter syndrome, I think, pulled away when I realized, oh, we're all imposters in this great world, you know, and we're all just doing what we can do at our strength. You have these huge names that you're working with. You have them coming in and out of, uh, you know, the different shows that you all do on the platform. Are there any secret sauce to how you make it work? Because those are a lot of personalities. The key that I have, which is this is like my lesson across the board, which is like be kind to people, be honest with people, and be direct. The other piece that I always have subscribed to is never I never pander to a culture I don't belong to. And that could mean anything, right? That could mean socioeconomic. It could mean ethnicity. It could mean I'm not a professional athlete. And I think what happens in dealing with anybody, whether it be a a billionaire or a celebrity or an athlete, a lot of people pander to that person. And for them, imagine the BS detector that sits in their mind when they see someone coming. And just imagine how many people come to them on a daily basis 
asking of something from them. And so for me, the secret sauce has always been to be authentic. The one thing that I can do, and when I say I'm confident in an area, the one thing I'm confident is I don't care if somebody is from international, low income, high wealth, whatever they are, I'm going to connect with them as a person. I want to shift gears a little bit, if that's okay. You also run Cheat Code Foundation. Tell us about how it got started. I mean, it was 2019, right before the pandemic. And this is, again, something I still struggle with, although it's gotten a lot better. But I can remember we had a meeting and it was like big boardroom, 15, 20 people around the table presenting different parts. And we were meeting with, you know, a big media partner. And I just panicked, panicked attack right in the middle of it um, where I felt like I need to get up I need to get out and to this day it's something that I I struggle with you know like even sitting here right now you know there's people around there's always a tendency to be like oh I might need to get up and leave I might need to stand up and walk out I finally had to reckon with what was happening which is like I have I have a real problem here you know and and I'm not saying that anxiety's a problem like that we should be ashamed of, but it's certainly a problem. My best friend in life, this guy who I've known since college, his name's Dr. Armando Gonzalez, and he had a private practice in Sacramento, and he had started working with some athletes and had had success. And I'm sitting here, and this is my best friend. He's a therapist. Mental health is his passion, his life passion. And I'm not fully even telling him what I'm going through. And I finally was like explaining to him what was going on, this and that. He recommended a type of therapy called brain spotting. And what it is, brain spotting sounds like they lay you on a table and cut you open. But it's it's truly visualization. It's a sister to EMDR, which a lot of people have gone through. But you, what you do is, as we talk, you may notice at times my eyes might drift this way. You know, especially if I'm processing something or I'm telling you a story of the past or whatever that may look like. And I'm probably not doing this justice, but the simple version is as you're processing something out and you're feeling like that emotion in you of anxiety or intense feeling, your eyes will lock on. They'll they'll match you to that pointer. And the whole time you're listening to bilateral music, I mean, you have headphones in, you have music in one ear, and then it switches from one to the other. When I started doing this brain spotting therapy with this woman, Dr. Gray, who's down in Century City, she tried to have me imagine, like, if you were to open up a drawer and papers just were flying out. She's like, this is stuff that's just been pinging in your body, and you need to just let it out and process it. And so things that happened to me, big or small, as a kid, you know, parents divorce or, you know dad not living in the state anymore. Like as a kid, you're not able to process that. And so to you, what may as an adult be some, something simple you could process through as a kid, it's fear and right. it's it's danger. Right. And so it pings around in your body and I wasn't letting this out. And so I did two things. One is I saw the therapist and I found a lot of great healing on that. And then the second thing is I started to share my experience with people. In that process, my friend Armando, you know, he had been working with athletes and he was doing the same therapy that I went through, this type of brain spotting with, with great athletes. And I just said, it's great that you're making really successful people more successful. It hurt my heart to think about the people who are hurting and can't heal. And the fact that we're only going to further inequality if people who have money are going to get healthy, their kids are going to be healthier. Right. And generationally, what are we actually putting? We talk a lot about like systemic issues. Are we actually like now in the process of creating another one? Right. And so Cheat Code Foundation was started as a way to bridge the gap and train practitioners, coaches, counselors, et cetera, in brain spotting so they can then 
treat people who are in their community, in their society, the people who are out in front of them? First of all, that is phenomenal work. Um, I, I'm an immigrant. I came to the States when I was five. We didn't talk about therapy growing up and we didn't talk about mental health. Um, even just as a society, it really wasn't a thing. And now in my 30s, obviously, we're having more conversations. And one of the things that I appreciate so greatly about you is you're open and honest and transparent about your your journey um, on LinkedIn and on Twitter. What's the difference to you between striving for perfection and striving for progress? It's a great question. I don't think I do a good job with that. I trip out. I freak out on like where I am. Like, am I going to ever heal? Am I ever going to to not have this nagging thing that just pops up that makes me afraid to sit in a car with somebody. The progress piece of it is hard to notice because I still feel the pain, you know? Mm -hmm. And, you know, you talk about the imposter. Sometimes I feel like an imposter when it comes to the mental health because I'll feel like I'm getting better, I'm doing better. And the next week I can't sit in a room. And so I think that for me, it's when I say progress versus perfection, like I have to get to a point to realize the perfection's probably never going to come. I know you've spoken a lot about um, honesty and how important it is to to do better for you. Do you ever feel afraid to be honest in life, in business, as a husband, as a father? I do, all the time. Never as a father, because I have a six-year-old and a three-year-old, and those are the most honest humans you can find. Yes, if you um, want to get your feelings hurt, that's the place to go. <laughs> yes, exactly. And uh, those two boys, yeah, they will keep you honest. Uh, you know, I have an amazing marriage, and I'm so thankful. My wife is a school psychologist, so her job is to really know and understand children as they navigate the education system. And so we're able to always have very open dialogues. Like it's, if I could ever give marriage advice to anyone seeking a partner, it's like, if you communicate well with that person, yeah. you will make it. But when it comes to being honest, honest, mm -hmm. like this is the, this is the worst part about society today that I, I was actually talking to a friend about this recently about you can't be authentic in business. Mm -hmm. Society is so litigious at this point. You say the wrong thing. Someone's going to come for you, right. you know, or you do the wrong thing. And sometimes that's like being a human. Reaching out and wanting to be a friend to somebody going through a hard time right. can put you in a spot where you're liable for this or you're liable for that. And we are, to our point earlier, like we are all broken in some way. Yeah. And we we need to be able to be forgiven. And, you know, I have, I have a deep-rooted faith in, in, in everything that I believe in, in my heart and in my soul and in my faith. It's the same thing. Screw up, redemption. Screw yes. up, redemption. Yes. We can't cut out redemption. Yes. If we cut out redemption, one, we're lying to ourselves because that's also kind of saying we're all perfect. Right. Do you have any cheat codes for our audience that they can apply to their lives today? Somebody who you trust with yourself is important as a cheat code. Like I, I, I'm lucky. I have, you know, I have both my wife and I have Armando, my right. friend I was talking about. Like, who happens to be a therapist and one school psychologist, I got like, I figured that out. <laughs> I, uh, but for me, I, I think having an outlet that you could be really honest, then there's also, where do you take your breath? Mm. Where are you carving out space for mm. yourself? And we fill every ounce of our day. Like you got to give your mind opportunity to process what's happening and what's going on. If you're just cluttering your mind and not processing anything, you're not, you're just internalizing everything. And last question, since I've asked you a ton, yeah. what's next, Jimmy? The sole thing professionally that I am focused on right now is getting uninterrupted to be bigger and better, known for being the place where athletes come to create. I need to keep focus on the main things. Yeah. The main things to me are my family. The main thing is my 
professional side and the main thing is community and what that looks like. Community mm-hmm. for me is my church, my friends, cheat code as a foundation, community, caring, those kind of things. Mm-hmm. And really just trying to simplify. Like, does it ladder into one of those three things? And if it doesn't, I need to let go of it. Oh, I love that so much. So y'all, there are a few takeaways that I wanted to share with you. One, everyone has shortfalls and deals with imposter syndrome. You can't be perfect. You just have to find what's best for you and what you're good at and do that. Also make time for yourself to just be. Thanks again, Jimmy. And thanks for listening to today's episode of Influence to Equity. We'll see you next week.